Okay, huh? I'm going to set this over here so I don't knock it over because that's, that's bound to happen. And I need to put these on or I cannot see. I'm going to be ready in just a second. I'm sorry. The one thing that I do want to say is I am just grateful that we were able to, to pull off being able to be in the park. I know Matt was wondering if we'd actually be able to do this while he was gone. And if he was listening, I would say, we did it. <laughs> we're outside. We're praising Jesus in the park. This is awesome. Well, you know, <clears throat> the one thing I want to say to begin with is 20 years ago, next week, you know that that's the anniversary of 9-11. When 9-11 happened, a few weeks before that, I was preaching at a church, and I preached on Matthew 5, 43-48, about loving your enemies, without any idea of what was to come three weeks later. And when that, when that happened, when a tragedy happened, I was... I was working for a company whose main office was right down in the financial district. And so they actually closed our office in Denver the same day. And when it happened, I was, you know, like most people, shocked. I was angry. I was mad. I wanted, I wanted, I wanted bad things to happen to those who did that. Which was in direct contrast to what the Lord had given me to say just a few weeks earlier from that passage from the Sermon on the Mount, to love your enemies, even those who persecute you, to pray for them. And I, I have to tell you, it took me a long time, months, if not longer, to reconcile to myself what was it that God was trying to tell me through the message, and then how in the world did he let this thing happen? How in the world did... 3,000 people die in an instant over something as heinous as that. I was really, really mad. After a while, the Lord kind of worked on my heart, and he told me through his word and through study, not from some great revelation that we had, but through the study of his word that it was my heart was the one that was dark. That was not him giving me the idea that we should go out and kill and maim and, and, and do all these terrible things that my mind was telling me that we needed to do. My heart was the dark one where all the terrible things were coming out of and spewing out of my mouth in direct contrast to what he had taught me just a few months before that in that passage. You know, I asked myself this question, you know, which I knew the answer. Where are you, God, in this? And I know that some of us, when we go through difficult things in our lives, no matter what they are, whether it's a 9-11 experience, or whether it's like you're a victim of a flood or a hurricane, or uh, you've gotten a bad diagnosis from your doctor, you've lost a relationship, there was someone who's been very close to you, maybe someone has cheated on you or you've cheated on someone else and now everything is a mess and your finances are insane and everything is upside down and you wonder where is God why are you putting me through this why are you doing this to me I've done nothing 
to you to deserve this. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. I think a lot of us, if we were truly honest with ourselves, would say that we did feel that way at one time or another. Even though we know the truth, that that's not really how God works, sometimes that's how we feel. And the passage that we're going to look at today in James 1, 9 through 18, James tells us about where God is, where God is, where we can find him during these terrible things that happen in our lives, these trials and tragedies that we have. So if, let's take a minute and let's pray, or let's uh, read this passage and then we'll pray. James 1, 9 through 18. Starting in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, God, for bringing forth this beautiful day. I just pray, God, that this morning as we study this passage in James, God, that you would open our hearts and minds to what it is that you have to say. That you will help us to answer the question of where are you when these terrible things happen in our lives, when we go through these trials and tribulations, Lord. Where are you? Lord, we know that James provides the answer, so help us to see it. Help our hearts to be open and our minds to be open so that we can be changed in how we view you correctly. I pray, God, that you would speak through me this morning through your word. By the power of your Holy Spirit, God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we start out in verses 9 and 10, we James gets right to it. He gets right to it. He says, let the, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation because he's like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. So what is he saying here? It sounds like that there's some sort of weird contradiction going on here between the lowly and the rich. When we think of the world and how it views this situation, we see that the lowly, the lowly here, what James is talking about, he's talking about the lowly being those that are poor, those that are in a low position here on earth, those that may not have a lot of possessions, those that may not be well educated, those that the world would say are, are down here or lowly. 
What is he saying? He's telling us that, that these needy people, these people who we don't look to to be great leaders because of their position, they're the ones. Now remember, that is the world's standard upon which we look at. These are the ones who should be exalted. These are the ones who should boast. What is the contradiction there? When we think in ourselves, how, what do we have to boast in? We have to boast in Christ. We have to boast in Christ. James tells us, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Those of us who are in low circumstances today by the standards of the world, are so rich by heaven's standards. So rich. If you have Christ in your life, you are filled by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are a child of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you have an inheritance waiting for you beyond anything that you can imagine in heaven. Waiting for you there. You are so so rich. Colossians 3, 23-24 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ. You know, when we work, we want to know what is our wages. What, what, if I'm going to do this job, what am I going to get paid? Everybody wants that. You know, when you apply for a job and you go in for the interview, you can listen to the boss who'll tell you about all the work. But the question that you want answered is, what am I going to get paid? What am I going to get paid? Well, you are going to get paid beyond anything you could even imagine. Beyond anything you deserve. 1 Peter 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ the dead, from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Man, it's going to be awesome. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. No words. It'd be a full inheritance as a child of the king. That gets me excited. That gets me excited. It gets me excited. And that should help raise us up from our lowly place to be exalted, to boast in Christ and Christ alone. But what about, what about the low? What, I mean the rich. What about the rich? It says the rich should be the rich in his humiliation. He said we should boast, the low should boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. And in verse 11, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will be the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So in this particular case, are both of these people that, that, James is talking about are they both Christians and it would seem that they would because boasting comes also not just from the lowly but carries over into verse 10 to the rich but we those of us who maybe have more those of us that might be considered rich in the world those that may have education may be put into a place of leadership just based on their financial status 
Sometimes we in the world, we think of those that have things that they must be smarter than we are. They must be automatically good leaders. They must, so they have these things. They get places that some of us that aren't as rich can get to. But those things in the world sense, those fade away. They wither like grass. Those of us who live in La Junta, which would be everybody here mostly, if you've been here at all in the summer, you know about the scorching heat and wind and how it just bakes your yard and everything that's got vegetation. If you do not water it regularly, it's going to wither and die. And such are the things that we have when we're rich. Those are not the things that we put our faith in. Those are not the things that we put our hope in. We put our hope in Christ, in Christ alone. And what does this faith look like that we need? John Calvin says this, Faith is like an empty, open hand stretched out towards God with nothing to offer but everything to receive. Everything to receive comes from above. And we'll look at that more later. So we, this word humiliation that he's talking about means to be made low. So the rich are to be made low and the low are to be exalted so that we are one because our boast is not in anything that we have or do not have. It's in Christ alone, no matter what our circumstances are. But let's be fair. When we pick on the rich, and we pick on the rich a lot, sometimes those of us who don't have a lot, we wear our poverty on our chest like a badge. We start to boast in what we don't have. We start to think, well, we're better because we don't have a lot. Those rich people don't have any idea what we're going through. Understand, I get that. But let's not do that. It goes both ways. We cannot exalt in our, in our poverty, and we cannot exalt also in our riches. We only boast in Christ. All of us perish. Excuse me a second. <laughs> you have to be willing to move on in your outside. Everybody perishes. The body fades away. I remember we had a, a picture on our refrigerator of me when I was younger, much younger. And we had a friend of ours who came to our house and she looked at the picture <clears throat> and she told Sherry, she goes, wow, Scott was really a handsome man when he was younger. And I laughed too. But it's true. We all get older and beauty fades. But our hope in Christ never fades. It never fades. We're all here to perish. And Billy Graham, who lived until he was 99, he said this, my home is in heaven. I'm just traveling through this world. This is a reminder for us not to revel in these things. Not to revel in our wealth or our poverty. Because it will fade away. Our faith is in Christ and Christ alone. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Excuse me a second, I need a cough. <coughs> Thank you. That'll be much better later on. James says in verse 12 that when we endure the trials and temptations we face, that there is a reward for the crown of life. 
And this particular crown is only mentioned twice in the Bible. Here, and then also in Revelation 2.10. It is a gift for those who persevere through trials and tribulations, for those who endure life's hardship and faith who remain steadfast. To help us to understand what this means, let's read Matthew 24, 11-13, when Jesus talks about what's going to happen at the end of time. Matthew 24, verses 11-13. through 13. <clears throat> And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The crown of life is a symbol for our salvation, for staying true to Christ Jesus. And it will never fade away. Those of us who stay steadfast in the Lord are the ones who will be saved. The ones who don't fall away. Because if you truly have a faith in Christ, you will not fall away. If you are truly called by God, you cannot be uncalled. He cannot go back on His promise to call you as one of His. When you are a child of God, you are His for eternity. We looked at this verse with Romans 11.29 for the, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He cannot go back on his word. Last week we looked at Philippians 3-11 through 11 when Paul talks about how he considers everything that he has gained as loss. Everything he has gained in this world as loss compared to knowing Christ. If we look at the following section of that passage, Philippians 3-12-16, he says, Not that I have already obtained this, which is the resurrection of the dead, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Paul says we must press on. Leave the past behind. You've made it through those trials. You must continue on to the goal of knowing Christ and Him alone. Obtaining to the resurrection... Excuse me. Man, I don't know what's going on with my throat today, but it's having all kinds of problems. Pressing on to the mark. Pressing on to our salvation, to our inheritance in the Lord. This is incredibly important for us because it's a reminder to us of all the difficulties that we're going through in our lives, when we get to the point where we can't do it anymore, when we can't handle it, when we don't want to deal with this, when we feel like we have gone through enough, and where is God? Why is He continually putting me through this? When another trial rears its ugly head, it's difficult for us to remember that our inheritance is in heaven. But it is. And that's what Christ, that's what James is telling us. When we look at the next section, verses 13 through 15, we see that the source of our temptations 
are not the Lord. They are not the Lord. And so when we blame God, we're going in the wrong direction. This is what James says, starting in verse 13 of our passage this morning. Let no one say, Excuse me. Thanks. Sorry, guys. I apologize. This never happened to me before. I have a catch in my throat that won't go away. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire... When it, has conceived birth, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It is easy sometimes to blame God when things go wrong. Or when we're tempted and we fall. Why would he bring that to us? But we have studied many times this past summer that God doesn't cause the trials, but he uses them to help us to be more conformed into the image of his Son. It's part of our sanctification process. God takes evil and he turns it into good. It is to bring us into a stronger faith in who Christ is. It's part of our sanctification. But the Lord is never, as James says, the source of our temptations because God himself cannot be tempted by sin, so he cannot tempt us either. His goal for us is to be holy and pure. To be people who don't sin. That's how he created us in the Garden of Eden before the fall. It was the fall of Adam and Eve that brought sin into the world. We know this by now. And that's what, that's what James is saying in verse 13. He's commanding us to never blame God for our sin. Then in verse 14, James tells us that our temptations are brought on by ourselves. It is our own desire that lures us into sin. I asked Sherry to read that passage in Proverbs chapter 7, not because that's a fun, happy passage to read, but because it shows us the progression of sin that James is talking about. Let's read a few of those verses in that passage in chapter 7, starting in the second half of verse 7. I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening, at the time of the night in darkness, and behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. And then down to verse 18. <clears throat> Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. <clears throat> he has gone on a long journey. And, with, and then starting in verse 21, <clears throat> with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And all at once, he follows her. All at once, excuse me, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, whereas a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that this will cost him his life. Do you see the, do you see the progression of sin as James is talking about? Our desire being lured in. And we follow that desire 
and it gives birth to sin. And that sin becomes death. It leads us to death. What kind of death does it lead us to? It leads us to a spiritual death, and it separates us from our Lord. It is not a good thing. And we need to learn how to put sin to death. We need to learn how to put sin to death. But the sin also can lead us to physical damage. <clears throat> because in order to cover up these sins, we must sin again. And sin again, lie upon lie, to cover up our sin. And that brings stress. That brings a shortness of life into us. Sin is a horrific thing. A sin like is described here in Proverbs 7. As we looked at Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Jeremiah 16.17 reminds us that nothing is hidden from the Lord. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. <clears throat> so we must put our sin to death. We must put our sin to death. So then the question is, well, that sounds great. How do we do that? How do we put our sin to death? Paul gives us some answers in Romans 8, 9 through 13. Starting in verse 9, he says, You, Christian, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. In other words, you don't belong to Jesus. You're a non-believer. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul says in verse 10, if you are not a Christian, if Christ, if you are a Christian, if Christ is in you, then you are dead to sin because the spirit of God lives in you. He has given you the power to put sin to death. He goes on to say in verses 13 and 14, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you will, be, you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. <clears throat> the great theologian John Owen says, We need to be killing sin or it will be killing us. We must be about killing our sin by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. I, I like listening to Christian music, and Jeremy Camp has a song, it's one of my favorites, that kind of echoes what we read there in Romans 8. It says, the, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. Lives in us. <clears throat> If you are saying that you do not have any power by yourself to kill sin, well, you're right. We do not have any power on our own to kill sin. But with the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, we do. That's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead can raise you from your sin. It requires a lot of prayer. 
It requires being in God's word regularly. And when I say regularly, I mean daily. Feed on what is good and not on what is evil. In Matthew 20, 32, <clears throat> Jesus asked the question to the two blind beggars, what is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to have their eyes open. And Jesus opened their eyes. Another man, a leper, in Mark 1, 40-42, asked Jesus to heal him. And he said to Jesus, if you will. And Jesus said, I will be clean. And he did, he healed him. In fact, he touched him. Remember, a leper was unclean. Jesus said that if we have the faith of a mustard seed, we could command a mountain to go into the sea. You know what our biggest problem is about putting sin to death? It is a lack of faith in Christ. Do we ask him to help us to put our sin to death? Do we cry out to him? Do we believe that he can? Do we truly believe in the power of the gospel, in the power of the cross, that the cross took our sins and nailed them to the tree, past, present, and future? That by looking to Christ and praying to him and crying out to him, that we can put our sins to death, not by our power, but the power that lives in us that raised him from the dead. We boast in Christ alone and understand that it is not Christ, that it is not the Lord who brings temptation into our life, but it is our own desires that grow up into sin and lead us to death. The Lord, by the power of the Spirit and a strong faith in the gospel, can lead us out of that. And as we turn now to the final verses in this passage, verses 16 through 18, Excuse me. James warns us not to be deceived into having a wrong view of our Lord. He is the father of lights, not of darkness. He is immutable. He is never changing. He brings down to us every good gift from above. Let's read verses 16 and 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Actually, there is a lot of theology, a lot of great truths regarding our Lord in these verses. We only have time to look at a couple of them. <clears throat> but he begins with a warning in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, meaning brothers and sisters. In this case, the deceit comes from our own heart, our own flesh. It comes from our thoughts like, God, why do you let terrible things happen in this world? Why am I suffering and going through this trial? Where are you? Why are you doing this? Again, as we learn that God's not the tempter, we are. James is telling us to not let ourselves be led astray and have bad theology about God. Do not be led into error. And he is saying this out of deep concern for his audience because he calls them beloved. 
his favorites, his esteemed friends. I cry this out to you, as my esteemed people, the congregation that God has given us. We do this out of our love for you, that we bring these messages to you. It is not that we want to share all of these things with you, but God compels us to share these things about sin with you so that you understand what God wants from us. With that same love, we bring this message to you. You must know who our God is. And James provides the correction to the error regarding God by pointing out that God is the source of every good and perfect gift. That he is the Father of lights. 1 John 1 says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. He is incapable of evil. He can only provide good things. 1 John 4.16 says that God is love. God is perfect love. And like we learned last week, that God does not create the trials, but he does use them in our lives to help us become more like his son, to mold us into the image of Christ, to help us grow in our faith and to be able to handle the trials as they become more difficult. He is making us complete, perfect, with everything that we need so that we will lack nothing to endure to the end. The next truth that, about God that James brings to us in verse 17 is that there is no variation in him or shadow due to change. James is talking about the doctrine of immutability. The immutability of God, the, the God that never changes. Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why is that important to us? Why do we need to know that he never changes? We have heard many times in this world that if we're to live in it and be successful, we have to get used to change. People come and go in our lives. We'll have many different careers in our lifetime. We'll live in many different houses. We may live in many different towns. Everything changes. Change happens here all the time. Why is it important that we know that our God doesn't change? It's important to us to know because when we read the Bible, and we are looking to that one source of all good things, then we need to know that He never changes. <clears throat> that when we read His promises, they are always true. He does not go back on His promises. He is true to his word. He does not change. God is love. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. He will never change. And that is one thing that we can hold on to. When we read the word of God and we see that it is 66 different books written over many different years by many different people, and yet it doesn't contradict itself because God's word never changes. He is the author of, God, of all good things. <clears throat> I was having this conversation with Stu. Am I going long, Thomas? Is that the notice that I have five minutes left? <laughs> Which is about right, so... 
<coughs> I was having this conversation with Stu at lunch the other day, and we were talking about but God in the Bible, and it led me, and I told him, you're helping me write my sermon, because so, it led me to Ephesians 2. But I want us to see how God doesn't change and how beautiful that is for us and how that is helpful for us to know. Ephesians 2, <coughs> we're going to read verses 2, really through 6. Starting in verse 2 of Ephesians 2. And when you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, <clears throat> carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature's children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But listen to this. I mean, honestly, this is, this is the best. But God. But God. <laughs> right, Stu? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you see, Christian, do you see the faithfulness and the mercy of our God? The faithfulness and mercy of our God that never changes? The cross is always there. And we can always point to it in the power of the resurrection and the hope of the ascension and is coming again. The gospel message is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Our God, we can count on Him. Even when we're flaky, and we are dead in our transgressions, God raised us up, seated us with Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know what more He could do for us to convince us that He loves us. To convince us that we need to follow Him. To convince us that He is the way, the truth, and the life. No matter whether you are rich or poor, rejoice in your God. Rejoice in the truth. Exalt His name. Live for Him. Put to death your sin. Come into your faith and grow in your knowledge of Him. Pray to Him. He is wanting to hear you. Do you know that all the prayers of the saints are kept in a bowl in the throne room of God? Every single one. You don't think your prayers matter? He keeps track of every single one. Does He need your prayer? No. But He wants your prayer. He loves you so. And James is telling us that when we go through those trials, it is not because he's mad at you. It is not because he hates you. It is not because he's out to get you. It is because he loves you. And he wants you to understand who he is. He wants you to see who he is. His faithfulness to you in spite of your unfaithfulness to him. That is the God of the Bible. Who never changes. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I just thank you, God, for who you are. I thank you for the love that you have for us. I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for James, for bringing us such a great passage, Lord, to be able to speak upon and see you for who you really are. God who never changes, who is the Father of lights, who brings us all good gifts from above, who loves us in spite of our sinfulness, who gives us all we need to endure through the difficulties of life so that we can become more like you. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you as their Savior, who has not given their life to you, does not consider themselves to be a Christian, that today would be the day that they would give their life to you, Lord. That they would lay down their pride and they would take up your faithfulness and forgiveness into their life. I praise you, God, and thank you again. And help us to live these truths, Lord, when it gets difficult. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.